associate pastor for discipleship at North Harford Baptist Church. And just to embarrass them, I'll point out my family who's over here on the side. Give, give a little wave. It's, uh, it's great to be here. I will need that lectern that's over here. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. Uh, thank you for your warm welcome. Uh, man, I love that song. You know, uh, where would we be apart from God's goodness and God's faithfulness? I tremble to think. Thank you. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, so let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and get right into it. 1 Corinthians 15, looking at verses 35 through 49. And I've called this message, All You'll Ever Know. All You'll Ever Know. On the other side of receiving your resurrection body, for all the details of the passage, and there's lots of things in the passage, and all the different things we talk about in the sermon, really just one prayer and one hope that I have this morning is that we would fix our hearts on the resurrection hope that we have in Christ, the full inheritance of eternal life. If we've come to Christ in faith, we already possess eternal life, but not the full reward of that life. That's coming on the day of resurrections. And in that day, all we'll ever know is Christ's likeness in its fullness. And in that day, all we'll ever know is the full presence of Christ. And in that day, all we'll ever know is the absence of sin. And in that day, all we'll ever know is the absence of the sufferings and the sorrows of this life. And in that day, all we'll ever know is the absence of the weakness of the flesh and all the negative things from living under the curse. All we'll ever know is to be gone of them and all we'll ever know is to possess the full inheritance of eternal life, Christ-likeness in the presence of Christ. So that's the overarching thing I hope that the Holy Spirit would fix our hearts on, the hope of resurrection glory in Christ. Well, to get started, I'm going to read this uh, passage and then pray for our time together, beginning in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. But someone will ask... How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that it will be, but it's a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. They're heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. Even star differs from star in glory. And so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, 
The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. But the second man is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, Lord, and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We praise you for who you are. Thank you for your word, God, and for your Holy Spirit. It's our collective prayer that you would help us, teach us, encourage us, correct us, fill our hearts with the hope that is in Christ. Fill our hearts and enrich our hearts with the peace of knowing him, of being those under grace, our sins being blotted out forever. You've, you have broken the power of this canceled sin in our lives, and we thank you, Lord. Pray that you would help us and give us a strength that is not our own in the preaching of the word and the reading of the word and the hearing of the word. And as your spirit applies the word to our hearts, Father, we depend on you 110% for this. So we come to you now asking for your blessing in our time of need. It's in Christ we lift our prayer. Amen. As we think about resurrection glory this morning and even zooming in on resurrection bodies, which obviously the passage is about, there's really three points to move through. First of all, the point of new life. That's the first thing I'll talk about, is that we'll receive a new life. Secondly, as we receive these new lives, it'll be in new bodies, right? And then these bodies will be of a new nature. So that's really the movement through this passage. We'll receive new life in new bodies with a new nature. First of all, a new life. Uh, this comes from verses 35 through 38. Really the point here is that the fullness of life comes after death, not before. The fullness of life, the fullness of life does not come and cannot be found before death. It can only come after death. That's the first point. Verse 35. You see, it begins with two questions. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? That's a great question. And then he asks another question, with what kind of body do they come? So this is how Paul introduces the topic with two questions that obviously were being asked and discussed in the church at Corinth. How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? And then in verse 36, he says, you foolish person or you fool I don't think he means that those questions, if you just ask those questions, that that in and of itself is foolish. No, they're good questions, but you can ask those questions in a, uh, in a skeptical way. You can ask those questions, and this was happening at Corinth, in a way that you're rejecting the resurrection and using these questions almost to expose that the resurrection doesn't exist. But the resurrection does exist. All of 1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection and its historicity and its necessity and its uh, supremacy, really, in history. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Two questions to introduce the topic. And now, immediately in verse 36, 
he gives an overarching response or an overarching answer to these questions. He says, in the middle of verse 36, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And we can just plant our feet there for just a moment because I can't summarize the point any better than that. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies or until it dies. So first comes the death and then comes the life. What you sow does not come to life unless first it dies. Now, all of the world around us is trying to convince us that the fullness of life, that the fullness of human existence is to be sought in the here and in the now and in material things and in temporal pleasures. But that's not true. The fullness of life can never exist before we die. First, we must die and then we'll be brought to life. The fullness of life comes after death, not before After he says this in verse 36, uh, in verse 37 and 38, he uh, furthers the point and he uses an illustration to further his point. Look at verse 37. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So not only does the fullness of life come after death, But that life that comes after death is going to be different than the seed that's planted. What you sow, whatever it is that you sow, a bare kernel or wheat or some other grain, this is an illustration, what you sow is not the body that will be. It's going to come to life in a different way form. It's going to enter a new phase of life, a new manifestation of life. The fullness of life comes after death, not before. And that fullness of life will not be in the same seed or the same kernel that it is now. Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. If you're into this, you could circle the word seed And circle the word body or underline the word seed and underline the word body. Later on in the passage, you'll see that illustration of a seed being sown and then coming to a new form of life is an illustration really to talk about the difference between our bodies now and our resurrection bodies in the future. But this is our inheritance. This is where we're headed. You will not forever be a disembodied soul in heaven. You will receive a resurrection body just like Christ received a resurrection body and there will dwell forever in his presence as a completed, as a gathered, and as a glorified church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the consummation of God's eternal purpose in a resurrection body. A seed, our bodies now, It will be given its own body, resurrection body. That's later in the passage. That's the final point. We look at the attributes of that. The fullness of life comes after death, not before. And if that's true, there are several, several applications. I've put down four here. I'm sure you could come up with more. But as we look forward to this new life, uh, we, uh, as we do that, as we live this life, constantly fixing our hope on this new life, we're living in alignment with God's eternal purpose 
and with the promise of Christ. That's where we want to be. We want to be living in God's will. We want to be living in alignment with God's eternal purpose, not our own purpose. And we want to be living in alignment with the promise of Christ, not the false promises of the world. John 6, 38 through 40, Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's referring to God the Father. God the Father sent God the Son to redeem for himself a people. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up, there it is, raise it up, resurrect it on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's the will of the Father that we would be risen up on the last day. It's the work of the Son to raise us up on the last day. It's the purpose of God. It's the promise of Christ. This is where we fix our hearts. And this is what shapes our identity. Really, this is what shapes our whole existence as children of God. Our hope and our hearts fixed on our inheritance in Christ. As we look forward to this new life, we're living in alignment with the purpose of God and with the promise of Christ. And the world will scoff at that, and the world does scoff at that, but we move forward by faith and by the power of the Spirit. Another application as we look forward to this new life, it means that we do not treat this life as ultimate. We do not treat material things as ultimate. We do not treat the temporal pleasures and treasures and trinkets, anything else in this realm, in this life, we don't treat anything of this world as ultimate. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. Is a good verse. God says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. That doesn't mean that riches are sinful, doesn't mean you can't have riches, but if your trust is in your riches, if your hope is in your riches, if to any degree our riches are functioning as our God, well, then it's obviously that's sinful. Our trust is not in riches or anything else in this realm. Our trust is in God. God's invisible. Our hope is in Christ. Christ is invisible. Our hope is in our eternal inheritance promised in Christ. That's future. That's invisible. But these things shape how we live. And if these heavenly, spiritual, invisible, eternal things are ultimate, nothing in this world can be ultimate. It doesn't mean that the things of this world are inherently bad or sinful. And that's the next Application as we look forward to this new eternal resurrection life. We're living in alignment with God's purpose and in alignment with the promise of Christ. And we're not treating things in this world as ultimate, uh, but we also don't treat things in this life as meaningless. We don't treat this world as meaningless. Uh, the good things and the enjoyments of this world are to be seen as gifts from God that we would enjoy, that we would enjoy with hearts of gratitude, that we would enjoy with hearts of thanksgiving, living by faith in Jesus Christ, seeing the, the good things and the enjoyments of this world, not as ends in themselves, but as reflections and reminders of something we just sang about, 
God's goodness, good things, good gifts and enjoyments in this world should point us to God. He is a benevolent God. He is a kind Father. He's given us so many good things. He gives us the the breaths that we're taking right now, our heartbeats that are happening right now, the food that we're going to eat today. All of the good things, all of the enjoyments are to point us to God. God is ultimate. So we don't treat life as ultimate. We don't treat life as meaningless. God doesn't want us want us to always be moping around in despair and skepticism and cynicism in the darkness that comes along with that. But see the good things in the world as gifts from God, and that will increase gratitude in our hearts. And finally, and this really is the central one, as we look forward to this new life, looking forward to this new life, we must always be looking upward to the giver of this life. And this is Christianity in a nutshell, that Jesus Christ came and suffered and died for our sins. He was buried. He was risen on the third day. He ascended into heaven, and it's from heaven. Jesus is the one who has received this resurrection life. It's from there that he gives that resurrection life to us. This is what salvation is. As we hear the gospel, and the gospel comes into our hearts, and the gospel changes our hearts, Jesus makes us partakers of the resurrection life that he achieved. Praise his name. It's all from him. It's not his work plus our work. It's not his goodness plus our goodness. It's Christ alone who shares this life with us. It literally is impossible to to be living with a true hope looking forward without also a daily communion looking upward. We live by faith in Christ, daily looking to Christ. This is what shapes and drives and moves us as children of God. New life, as I said earlier, at least I think I said this, we already possess eternal life if we've been united to Christ by faith. But we do not yet possess the full inheritance of that eternal life, and that's what we're talking about. New life, new resurrection life. Well, secondly, we'll live that new life in new bodies, new bodies. And this comes from verse 39 to 41. And what we're really saying here is that we'll be risen with new bodies, not the same bodies. And the resurrection will not just be resuscitated and given these same mortal bodies, but will be given new bodies, not the same. And so there's the, fir- there's the movement now. The fullness of life does not come before death, it comes after death, and the fullness of of life will be experienced in new bodies, not the same bodies. Verses 39 through 41, and I've got to tell you, these have always been captivating verses for me. I mean, they've always been intriguing verses. Uh, These 39 through 41, these verses, is just an extended argument from the created order, uh, just to explain the logic of new resurrection bodies. And you'll see as we come through here, he argues from the created order to make a point that, uh, uh, to make a point about the new resurrection bodies that we'll receive. And here's what he says, verse 39. Not all flesh is the same. And there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. So the first thing he does is point out that there's in creation there's different kinds of flesh, different kinds of flesh within the created order. Now who did that? Well, God did that. It's perfectly normal for God to create different 
kinds of flesh. There's different kinds of flesh. And then after that, he says there's different kinds of bodies. Different kinds of bodies. Verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. You see it? Different kinds of bodies. Heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. And the glory of the earthly is of another. Do you see what he's doing? He's arguing from the created order. But he's speaking to the logic of new resurrection bodies. There's different kinds of flesh. There's different kinds of bodies. And you, hopefully you picked up on in verse 40, he's already introduced the third thing. There's different kinds of glory. There's different kinds of glory. Verse 40 and 41. The end of verse 40 and into 41. The glory of the heavenly, uh, heavenly bodies is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. One glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. He's arguing from the created order to uh, make an argument that there, we're going to have new bodies. It shouldn't, sometimes when we talk about resurrection bodies, it can sound strange. It can sound uh, like this far-off thing that's difficult to grasp, and that's only because we've never seen a resurrection body. The only one that exists is the body of Christ who dwells in heaven. We've never seen a resurrection body. We've never touched a resurrection body. But resurrection bodies are a real thing. Jesus already has one. It shouldn't be strange. I think underneath of this argument of uh, 39 through 41, underneath, underneath the whole thing is that it shouldn't be strange for Christians to believe that God can create something new. That's the last thing that should be strange. The most natural, normal thing for us to believe should be that God can create God can create whatever he wants. God can create something new. And here he's talking about the resurrection body. So those in the church at Corinth who are denying the resurrection for whatever reason are completely off base. They're the illogical ones. They're the irrational ones. Now there's good application here too, thinking about the fact that well, re these resurrection bodies are coming, this new life in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth rather. And this application really is just a subset of the early, earlier application that we don't treat anything in this world as ultimate, and that includes our bodies. Right? We don't live enslaved to anything of our bodies. Right? Our, these bodies are not ultimate. So we don't live enslaved to the natural passions and the natural lusts of these bodies. We don't live enslaved as slaves, overly worried and anxious about the appearance of these bodies and what others are going to think about our bodies and what others are going to say about our bodies. These bodies are not ultimate. In Romans 7, 21 through 25, it's a longer passage uh, if you want to turn there. Romans 7, beginning in verse 21. The body is a problem. Because these bodies are under the curse. These, our bodies carry around the corruption of sin. Until we are rid of these bodies, friends, we'll never be rid of sin. Romans 7, 21, Paul writes, So I find it to be a law or a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
It's Paul's way of saying he can't get away from it. He cannot get away from the sin that lives within him. Verse 22, he says this, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And brethren, if you have the Holy Spirit within you, you delight in the law of God in your inner being. That means you delight in God's commandments and you delight to obey God and you, and you delight to ask God to help you to obey him. Delight in the law of God in my inner being. But verse 23, Paul writes this. I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. The law of sin that dwells in his members, his body. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That's why we need to be busy in prayer. That's why we need to be busy in repentance. That's why we need to be busy in spiritual warfare, daily crying out to the Holy Spirit to help us, help us fight sin. God, help me to fight sin. Help me to fight temptation. Help me, God, help me fight this battle cannot do it on our own. It's the Holy Spirit within us fighting against sin that dwells within us. And so uh, not slaves to these fallen bodies acting as if they are ultimate. And what the body wants, the body gets. No, no, no. Let it never be. And there's a positive side to this, of course, for application, actively pursuing purity out of love for God, actively pursuing holiness. Now, Are you with me? Holiness won't happen on accident. Amen? You've got to put effort. That doesn't mean the power lies within us. The power lies within God. But it takes our effort. It involves our effort, rather. And actually, the Apostle John links purity of living with resurrection hope. In 1 John 3, 2 and 3, he writes, Beloved, we are God's children now. Now, that's true. That's a present reality. If you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, you've been united to Jesus through faith, you're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope or everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, anyone who truly has their hope set on Christ is pursuing purity. Anyone who truly has their hope set on Christ is pursuing holiness, not as those under law, but as those under grace, not as rebels, but as adopted children. God is our Father, pursuing holiness out of love for God with our hopes set on Christ and Christ alone. You know, in the middle of 1 John 3, 2, summarizes All will ever know in resurrection glory. He says, uh, we know that when he appears, Jesus, we'll be like him. That's Christ's likeness. uh, Because we shall see him as he is in the presence of Christ. Christ's likeness in the presence of Christ. In the resurrection, that's all we'll ever know. New bodies living a new life. And the third point is uh, really the climactic point of this passage is that we'll have a new nature, a new nature. And this is the final point 
that he makes. And, and this section, it runs from verses 42 through 49. We'll just chip away at it. All right, we'll chip away at it, looking at the attributes of these new bodies that we'll receive in the resurrection body. So new life in new bodies with a new nature. Verse 42, and by the way, I have uh, six of these. All right, Verse 42 gives us the first one. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Well, hopefully that illustration earlier of the seed or the bare kernel comes right back to mind because it's supposed to. What is sown, that's our bodies now. What is sown refers to our mortal bodies, the bodies we see all around us. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. In the resurrection, all we'll ever know is that which is imperishable. I have a very simple definition for that. Uh, four words. What is imperishable? It means this, not subject to decay. Not subject to decay. These bodies are aging, and these bodies are going to die. And in one form or another, these bodies are going to decay. But in the resurrection, all we'll ever know is that which is imperishable, not subject to decay or aging or injury or anything, of, anything in that category. 2 Corinthians 4.16. You could probably flip over to it. It's probably two or three pages, well, maybe four or five pages in your Bible. 2 Corinthians 4.16 has always been an incredibly encouraging passage to me. And it speaks directly to this point. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul writes, Therefore, we do not lose heart. And though our outer self or our outer man is wasting away, and it is, isn't it? Our inner self is being renewed day by day. The inner self is being conformed to the likeness of Christ day by day. But the outer self is wasting away. Verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are transient, which means passing through, passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The seen things, the transient things, can be such a distraction to us, can't they? They can, they can be so captivating and so alluring, but they can hinder us in our walk with the Lord. We're called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto us. That means God will take care of us. He's not going to abandon us. God will take care of us no matter what. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, which means living in obedience to him. Now, God will take care of everything else. That's not easy to do. And we live in a world of distraction. We live in a world of things that we can see, things that we can touch, things that we can taste, things that we can feel and experience, but they're transient 
things. It's all going to be gone one day. And what's in Christ will remain. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. In the resurrection, all we'll ever know is that which is imperishable. And then the second attribute, he says, is glorious. All we'll ever know is that which is glorious, not shameful. And this is the first part of verse 43. The first part of verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. That's our bodies. It is sown in dishonor, or, or it's another way of saying what is shameful. It's, show, it's sown in shame. It's raised in glory. Interesting contrast. The dishonorable and the glorious. And these bodies will be sown in dishonor. They have done shameful things. We've thought shameful things in these bodies. We've said shameful things with our lips. Amen? We've done shameful things. We've brought shame upon ourselves. We've dishonored ourselves. We've dishonored God by how we've lived in these bodies. They will be sown in dishonor. But friends, they'll be raised in glory. Raised in glory to the glory of God. Glory in a general sense means radiant splendor. Glory just means the shining forth of something. My favorite illustration is just to talk about the sun. The shining forth of the sun, the glory of the sun, is its radiant brightness and its radiant heat or its beauty or its power that we can't even look at it without damaging our eyes, even though it's so far away, the power of the sun, which puts in perspective the power of the one who made the sun. Glorious, not shameful. Now, what does glory mean here? It's contrasted with dishonor and shame. It means reflection of God. It means the bodies we have will be, whatever they are, a reflection of God's character. And that's the greatest thing we could ever possess. That's the greatest way we could ever exist, is to be reflections of God's character. God's the greatest thing there is. God is perfect. God is holy. God is awesome. God is great. To be a reflection of God is the best way, the highest good we could ever have. And that's in contrast with the dishonor of how we'll be sown. You know, in the resurrection, we'll be worthy of his approval. God will truly approve of who we are and what we are in resurrection glory. It's all the result of Christ's work. So Christ gets praised because of that. In the resurrection, all we'll ever know is that which is imperishable not subject to decay. All we'll ever know is true glory, reflecting God's character, not, not living in and speaking and doing dishonorable things. Thirdly, all we'll ever know is that which is powerful, not weak. Powerful, not weak. This is the second part of verse 43. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. we start to see that he's not talking about biology when he's talking about these new bodies. These are ethical categories. These are moral categories. These are spiritual categories. Powerful, not weak. What's the central weakness of man? We're not able to obey God. The power here is the power to do God's will. 
It's the power to obey God. There's, it's not that you can jump higher and run faster and lift more weights. It's not that kind of power. What we're talking about here is true power. Power unto godliness. Friends, that's what's really important. Wouldn't you give anything just to have a little bit more of that today? The power to do God's will that can only come from God. In these bodies, we'll do nothing but obey God. The power unto godliness. Able to do. That's what power means. It means able to do something. The ability to do something. Here it's the ability to do God's will. Right now we're fraught with weakness. Fraught with weakness, morally, ethically, spiritually, but here we'll truly love God with all that we are in every way to his glory. We'll be able to obey fully and perfectly that greatest commandment of the law of God, to love him above all things, to love him most in our will and in our hearts and affections and in our minds and thought processes and in the words we speak and the way we speak them and the intent behind are speaking. Everything will be from a heart of love. Powerful. In other words, powerful, not weak. We're not talking about worldly power here. You get worldly categories of power and influence out of our minds. We're talking about the power, true power, the power unto godliness. In the resurrection, all we'll ever know is that which is imperishable and that which is glorious and that which is powerful. And fourth, that which is spiritual, not natural. This comes from verses 44 through 46. And he spends more time on this. He says, it's sown a natural body. That's us now. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Spiritual body. Spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And that should make us think of the creation account, the way Adam was created. He became a living being. But the last Adam, that's referring to Christ, became a life-giving spirit. Specifically, that's talking about the ascension of Christ, his ascension and exaltation, where Christ became a life-giving spirit because it's from there where he gives eternal life to lost and desperate sinners in the world, through the gospel, and through, the, through the work of the Spirit. He became a life-giving Spirit. But, verse 46, it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. See, the natural came first, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Verse uh, verse 44 and 46 on the spiritual body. It's actually probably the easiest one to summarize its definition just from Paul's letters. In Paul's letters, spirit is opposite of flesh. To be spiritual is to be opposite of the sinful flesh. Again, these are ethical and moral categories. To be of the flesh is to be lost, is to be outside of Christ. To be in the flesh is to still be a slave to the sinful passions. To be of the Spirit, or to be in the Spirit, is to be saved. It's to possess the Holy Spirit. It's to be made a partaker of the new creation in Christ. To, be a, to live in a spiritual body is to be fully animated 
by the influence of the Holy Spirit. To be fully animated, fully motivated, fully driven, fully shaped by the influence of the Holy Spirit. Friends, can you imagine, imagine an hour of existence like that. To be fully animated by what the Spirit of God wants rather than what we want. Can you imagine the blessing, the glory of this? In the resurrection, that's all we'll ever know. Not only will we not be under the curse, but there'll be no remnant of the curse left outside us or within us. In the resurrection, all we'll ever know is that which is imperishable. And all we'll ever know is that which is glorious and that which is powerful and that which is spiritual. We've got two more to go. Number five, in the resurrection, all we'll ever know is that which is heavenly, not earthly. This comes from verses 47 through 49. 47 through 49. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. That's Adam. The second man is from heaven or of heaven. Now, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's us now, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Heavenly, not earthly. That means fit for the realm of God's dwelling. That means able to live, able to dwell where God dwells. I believe all the other attributes are in service to this one. All that God is doing is making us able to experience the fullness of his glory. God wants his children to be with him. He wants to be with his children. It's through Christ that he makes this possible. To, be, to have a heavenly body is to be able to live in the presence of God and not disintegrate into nothingness. This is a really big deal. You can't just walk up into heaven. The old, in the Old Covenant, the tabernacle and all the regulations surrounding the tabernacle were to be an illustration of this. You couldn't just walk right into the tabernacle, whoever you were, whoever you were stroll right in there or take your family in there to do devotions. No, you would be stoned. You would be put to death. You cannot just come. Sinners cannot just come into the presence of God. There's an illustration of that in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. But it symbolized, symbolizes the reality, the blessing to be in heaven, the fullness of God's presence. Well, we'll have bodies that will enable us to do that, fit for the realm of God's dwelling. And finally, I'm going to cheat on this one and go down to verse 53. All we'll ever know in the resurrection is that which is immortal, not mortal. Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And I know they're very, very similar here, right? What's imperishable and what's immortal. There are different Greek words behind those, very closely related. The imperishable has to do with not subject to decay. Uh, The word immortal is putting a slightly different emphasis. It means unending. It means irreversible. It means permanent. The resurrection blessings we've been discussing from this passage can never be taken away from us once we receive them. And they'll never, they're not going to diminish over time. 
It's not going to diminish over time. It's, it's not going to be like sentimental value. It's actual eternal value and blessing forever in the presence of God. Immortal, not mortal. The problem with earthly things is that they can't satisfy us. And I hope, I hope you know that it's not just that you don't have enough things. And I hope you know that it's not just that you can't have those things forever of why they can't satisfy. We need to know that it's the things themselves. Earthly things cannot satisfy the human heart. Only God can do that. Only God can satisfy our hearts. And when he does that in, the, in its fullest form, giving us new resurrection bodies, will be immortal and it will never be taken away from us. I'm going to review these points on the resurrection body and then I have a couple of verses of encouragement to share and then we're through. In the resurrection, all we'll ever know is that which is imperishable. Won't that be great to not be subject to decay? And all we'll ever know is that which is glorious and not shameful and dishonorable like the way we live now. And all we'll ever know is power, not weakness. And all we'll ever know is the spiritual, not the natural, not the fleshly. And all we'll ever know is the heavenly, and all we'll ever know is the immortal. Now here's the first of those verses, Philippians 3, 20 through 21. Paul writes, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables, even, that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There's a great application there of patience. To be a child of God is to be a patient person, to wait for Christ, to wait for this inheritance. And the final passage actually is the very last verse of 1 Corinthians 58. It's always been a very encouraging verse to me, and I hope it's an encouraging verse to you. It's the way Paul closes this great chapter on the resurrection. And he writes this, Therefore, therefore my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And that's the encouragement I want to leave upon our hearts. Be steadfast and immovable. That means don't give up. Don't give up. Press forward. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord because knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. This is not meaningless. This is not pointless. God is using you and God will use you. And at the appointed time, he'll bring all things to their glorious, glorious fulfillment in the resurrection of all the church of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the sanctification that you're working in our hearts even now. And we thank you for the hope of heaven. We thank you that we do have a destiny and we do have a promise and we do have a home with you to know you and be with you and serve you forever. It's in Christ we lift this prayer and we say thank you, Lord. Amen.